On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we speak with animator Tom Cook, who, by the power of Grayskull, helped bring your favorite childhood cartoons to life. Plus, we preview the guests, the panels, the swag, and the don't-miss opportunities at next month's New York Comic Con. Now, straight from Battle Cat's scratching post, this is 1.21 Gigawatts! Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 44 for September 2019. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that are cool and noteworthy and deserve to be celebrated. Do both yourself and myself a favor and subscribe right now at Apple Podcasts, Player FM, or SoundCloud.com to guarantee that you never miss an episode. Convention season seems like more of a theoretical state of mind than an actual period of time on the calendar. You can find some sort of pop cultural gathering just about year-round and have the opportunity to pick up comics and collectibles, meet your favorite creators of genre TV and film, and generally bask in the talent of cosplayers who are somehow able to shop and schlep around gigantic homemade anime swords. But it's hard to argue that the New York Comic Con is a monster of a capper to a summer full of these nerdtastic opportunities, quote unquote, ending the convention season in a big way. And by big, I mean gigantic. For the uninitiated, ground zero for New York Comic Con is the Javits Convention Center on Manhattan's west side. It's the biggest meeting space in New York, and even it isn't big enough to hold the event's 250,000-plus attendees over the course of the event, which runs from October 3rd through the 6th. So, that means that many panels have been outsourced to additional venues, such as Hammerstein Ballroom, the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden, and even the New York Public Library. The awesome side effect is that the geek have inherited the earth, at least 34th Street between Madison Square Garden and the west side, as the sidewalks are full of conventioneers and costumed heroes and villains alongside dog-walking and bagel-hunting New Yorkers. It's pretty great. But once your cape is firmly affixed and you're ready to brave the crowds, how do you narrow down what to see? Where should you get in line? What can be done to maximize your time at the four-day event? The quick answer is that it's impossible to see it all, so you want to narrow down what's most important to you and make a plan to have some moments you'll remember forever. Here are five highlights you'll want to consider. Number one, the guests. A staple of pop culture conventions is the opportunity to meet, get autographs, and pose with your favorite performers, and New York Comic Con does a great job of assembling a lineup that contains at least one person who'd give pause to even the most hardened nerd. This year, the lineup includes everyone's favorite scheming Asgardian trickster Tom Hiddleston, direct from Cloud City, the indefatigable Billy D. Williams, and even Paul Rudd, star of Clueless and I Love You Man who is also occasionally known for shrinking to the size of an insect and saving the universe in the biggest movie of all time. The list goes on, of course, Nichelle Nichols, Anika Noni Rose, Paul Rubens, Sean Astin, Vincent D'Onofrio. But I want to single out Christopher Eccleston, who spent many years not wanting to talk about his time as the star of Doctor Who, But now that his position has apparently reversed and you can meet him, grab your sonic screwdriver and get in line. 
Number two, the panels. While there will be some great media panels featuring the cast and creators of Castle Rock, Runaways, and The Walking Dead universe, this year's New York Comic Con is really boldly going straight into the heart of Star Trek fans with two big back-to-back panels on October 5th. First up is Star Trek Discovery, featuring stars Sonequa Martin-Green, Doug Jones, and more. That's followed by Star Trek Picard, featuring Sir Patrick Stewart, Alison Pill, and more to share a peek into what Jean-Luc has been up to since his Next Generation days. I mean Next Generation movies. Video games. You get the idea. Number three, Artist Alley. Look, if you're going to a comic convention and you're not stopping to bask in the creative aura of the men and women who've crafted your favorite four-color adventures, you're doing it wrong. And New York Comic Con has one of the best artist alleys in the game. Where else can you say hello, get a signature, or just say, thanks for pouring your imagination out on the page for me to read, to industry rock stars like Adam Kubert, Dan Slott, and Katie Cook, And they're sitting right next to legends like Chris Claremont, Arthur Adams, Jim Starlin, Brian K. Vaughn, and Frank Miller. And they're next to someone that you're not familiar with yet, but you're about to discover them, and they're going to be your new fave. Believe it. Number four, the cosplay. Okay, I want you to think of the craziest, most creative, fan-created costume you'd expect to see at a comic convention. So, what's that? Screen-accurate Flash costume? All of the Game of Thrones characters? A trillion Dragon Ball Z characters? Of course, that's just the beginning. Dream bigger! How about Medieval Spawn? He'll be there. Dudes dressed like Daft Punk with the helmets that actually have the writing on it? Of course! A dog wearing a Venom outfit? Naturally! The cosplay is off the chain at New York Comic Con and is worth the price of admission alone. Number five, the exhibitors and their awesome swag. Someone's gotta fill up that giant convention center and the rows and rows of booths are there to accommodate all of your nerdy needs. From publishing to gaming to toys to clothes, there are a million great ways to spend your money. And frankly, you're already probably too late to get into some booths. Exhibit A, Funko. The makers of those adorable collectible pop figures of any and all pop culture franchises, you know what they are, you own one or two at least, don't try to fool yourself that you don't. They've got a booth that is a monument to the supply and demand system. Their show exclusives are super cool, but if you don't have a ticket to be in line at a certain time on a designated day, you're not going to get your Stan Lee in a spacesuit collectible. Other things to keep in mind, bring water, bring snacks, tell your family you love them, because not only will you not want to come home, you may not be able to. New York Comic Con is now the most heavily attended convention in the country, and the aisles are jam-packed. So bring your anxiety medication too! Seriously, in all of the years that I've been attending New York Comic Con, I, and a couple hundred of my best friends, have eaten lunch sitting on the floor of a huge lobby space because the closest empty tables are two city blocks away. So prepare yourself. But if you do accept the challenge and plan on attending, let me know that you're going. I'll be there on Sunday, October 6th. I'll be the white guy wearing the nerdy t-shirt. You can't miss me. Generation Xers can tell you what Saturday mornings are supposed to be like, wearing your pajamas, crunching on cereal, and planting your bedheaded face in front of the TV for two to three hours, letting cartoons 
roll over into you, seep into you, and charge up your imagination before some kind of news show or golf or something came on. You'd watch Scooby-Doo, Plastic Man, Heathcliff, Thunder the Barbarian, Super Friends, Fat Albert, and of course, Masters of the Universe and She-Ra, Princess of Power. And behind all these titles and more was animator Tom Cook, part of the hard-working teams that brought these characters to life 12 drawings a second. I interviewed Tom back in June at the Garden State Comic Fest in Morristown, New Jersey, and heard his tales of what it was like to bring these animated characters to life, and how it all started with a bus route. You know, I've got to say, typically, when I write introductions for, for interviews, I typically list credits. But in the case of Tom Cook, I feel like I can probably sum it up all up by saying, did you watch cartoons in the 1980s and 90s? Well. Here you go. Here's who you have to thank for that. Um, thank you so much for the time. Um, uh, as I said, so many people, especially the, the Gen Xers of this world, uh, are so intimately familiar with, with everything that you've done. Um, I, of course, will list some of those just so we're on the sure, same page, sure. although we can see some of them right behind us. Masters of the Universe, naturally. Challenge of the Super Friends, Flintstones, uh, some Roger Rabbit work. There's so, so many things, and I'm dying to hear about the path that you took to to get through some of these things. So you started in 1978 at Hanna-Barbera, is that right? Correct, yeah. Uh, kind of a weird way I got into this. Yeah. I was a transit bus driver in Los Angeles. No way. Yeah. And I used to drive by Hanna-Barbera every day. That was part of my route. And I was I would just look at this building saying, I just want to go in there and just, you know, tour the place or whatever, because that's what I grew up on was Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, all those right. early 60s cartoons. And uh, one day I was, I think it was my day off, and I went out to get the mail, and it was a bunch of junk. And instead of throwing it in the trash, for some reason I threw it on my kitchen table. <laughs> and as I'm eating my sandwich, I see this little pamphlet. And I said, well, I'll just kind of look through the pamphlet while I'm eating. You know, I like to do something. Sure. And uh, it was an extension course uh, from for the local college that they were going to be having in the summertime. And uh, I saw this comic book class. Mm. And the teacher was a guy named Don Rico, who I knew had drawn the Captain America back in the 50s. So I wanted to meet him because I was a big comic book fan. And so I took the class, and we brought our portfolios in to show him what we had done in the past, you know, just our sketches and stuff. And mine was all superheroes. So after the class, he said, Tom, can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah. And he goes, I work at Hanna-Barbera. Oh, and I'm a storyboard artist. And we need people that could draw superheroes because we're working on super friends. Would you be interested if I recommend you to a class to learn basic animation? And I said, well, you know, that's really nice, but I... I think I'd rather be a bus driver the rest of my life. The M23 is not going to get itself to. <laughs> so, so yes, yeah, so of course I said yes. And every Thursday, I went to Hanna-Barbera, got to go in the building, and I took this class. But after three weeks, they hire me. And I don't even know what I'm doing yet. <laughs> but he said, don't worry, you're going to be with an animator. You'll be his assistant, and you'll kind of learn through that. So I didn't even take my... Uh, I didn't even quit my job at the bus driving. I just put it on hiatus for three months. I took a leave of absence because I didn't know if I could even do this. And after about two or three weeks, the animator finally said, you know, you're really picking this up fast. I said, 
it's time. <laughs> it's time to no longer drive a bus. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Everyone always has such spectacularly odd routes into, and route being the operative word, I guess, yes, in this yes. in this case. Um, and I, I like that uh, even though this seems like one of those sort of handed on a silver platter situations, but there was still enough calmness to say, like, you're good, you clearly have natural talent, let's get you to a place where you can really do something legitimate with that. And here's yeah. a class rather than just like, welcome to fame and fortune. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. excellent. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was, you know, I, I knew I could draw, but animation's a lot different. You have to know how things move. And I could have been an assistant animator, which is what I was for the first two or three years, but I found out that I have the ability to kind of figure out how people move and to make it look realistic, and I never knew I could do that, <laughs> you know? So, but it took, you know, I would do tests and, and show people, and they'd say, okay, well, here, try fixing this here. And, and finally, after showing a bunch of tests uh, to the people of Filmation, the director said, okay, here, you're ready to be an animator now. And that was in 1981 on a TV show called Brave Star. Okay. No, sure. Black Star. I get my stars confused. <laughs> Black Star was first. And that was the first show I got to be an animator on. So that's one of the shows that it only ran for a season, but yeah. it's deep in my heart. Sure, because it was sure. I got to work on. That's your, that's your baby, for sure. Yeah. So relatively quickly, you, you jumped through a few different places. Ruby Spears and uh, Film Roman were relatively swiftly after that, right? Well, what happens in the uh, TV industry, especially uh, in animation, is that once the season's over, you basically get laid off. And then the networks decide what shows they're going to pick up, which new shows they're going to you know, renew and all that sort of stuff. And uh, so whatever studio gets work first, that's where everybody that's where goes. Go. And so that's how I moved over to Ruby Spears and then uh, worked on Thundar, Plastic Man, Heathcliff, and after about a year there, there was a big actor strike in 1980, where, I mean, you're John Waynes and you're, they were all yeah. on strike. And Mel Blanc, who was the voice of Heathcliff, they had let him go on vacation. And when he came back, they went on strike. So they didn't get any work right. out of him. So we didn't have any voice tracks. Oh. So they, they laid us off. And then they kind of were telling us, you know, they bought this brand new building and rumor was that they were struggling and so I heard that Filmation Studios uh, was hiring and that they weren't ever going to send work overseas and that's what started happening so I moved over to Filmation and sure enough Ruby Spears kind of closed down and Hanna-Barbera closed and sent all the work to Japan and Korea and Filmation was the place to be yeah. so everybody worked at Filmation because it was really the last TV studio uh, in the U.S. Right. And it lasted another eight years or so before the studio finally closed. But we were actually doing two new seasons of something. But uh, L'Oreal, the makeup company, mm -hmm. bought the company from Westinghouse because <laughs> Westinghouse needed some money. And so they sold it off to uh, L'Oreal and they promptly closed the studio uh, after promising they would keep it open. Of course. You big makeup. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> I, I find it interesting, and I, I don't know if I really realize this necessarily, that it is sort of like an industry of freelancers, that there's a, there are very little um, 
planting of roots, I guess, knowing that you might bounce around a lot. And when you're talking about Film Roman and Bill Melendez, who did the Peanuts cartoons, and Jim Davis with Garfield. Uh, I even worked on the Paula Abdul video with MC Skatcat. Ah, yes, yes. Well, all of those things were just done freelance because there really wasn't anywhere after Filmation closed to really lay my roots until we ran into a guy that used to work at Disney named Dale Bear, and he uh, opened up his own studio, so he had a chance to work on a lot of Disney stuff. You see, I've worked on Prince of the Popper and uh, Roger Rabbit, yeah, and that was all through them, because he had such a good reputation that Disney would farm work out to him, and that way he didn't have to work at Disney, which wasn't really the best place to work, mm. and still get to work on the good products, though. So, and Dale was a great guy. I really loved working there. Right, 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 right. That, that is interesting. I, I realize that the, the farming out of work and Disney being an interesting case, like I um, know I know the rumors a little bit of like, yeah, it's the product that everyone loves and wants to be a part of, but it's a tough gig sometimes to have. What was the, uh, what, what, made, what made it difficult for them versus what made it easier other places? Was, was there specific management style anywhere that was really selling it? Well, it was to our mind, which a bunch of us that, a bunch of us end up working at Disney. I didn't, but a bunch of my good friends ended up working at Disney, and they kind of said it was just really political, you know. And if you didn't, if you didn't toe the right line, you'd be the first one let go. So that's something that, especially filmation, because since we're the only game in town, they needed yeah. everybody. Sure, sure. So you know there wasn't this political stuff going on. Yeah. And as long as you did your work, um, you were good. And it even got towards the end of filmation where they were so busy that if you did, you had to do 80 feet of film per week. That was the, and so if you did 160 feet, you get double your paycheck. Uh. So certain weeks you get some easier scenes. You say, well, this is the week I'm really gonna put my head down. Right, right. (laughs) And uh, so, it just was filmation was by far the best place i've ever worked as far as just atmosphere all my friends you know i I met there and then we kind of went because you go to one studio like when i got in at dale bear studio dale said uh you know do you have any friends i guess i do (laughs) thank you for asking (laughs) so the three of us were working together again the same three that we worked in the same room at on uh, he-man great so we just kind of did that all the time wherever we went we always got a job because of a friend being there. Right. Tell me about uh, some of the different roles that you held. Obviously, animators we're talking about sounds like the the, the majority of it. Where it's literally pencil on paper. Right. Um, uh, but you started in storyboards even before that. No, I didn't do any oh, storyboarding. Sorry. No, no storyboarding. I started out as an assistant animator, became an animator, and then in 1990, I moved to Seattle because there was really not much work. And... Uh, so I ended up getting a job at Microsoft, mm-hmm. and they had just come up with Soft Image, which was a 3D program to animate in a computer. So I was one of the very first 2D animators to learn how to use this. And uh, so I was there for about three or four years, but then they would send me around to different studios that were doing uh, video games for Microsoft. And I would go there to train the animators how to animate because they knew the computer Right. They knew the program, right. but right. if you don't know how things move, yeah. you really can't make a move. So I did that for a while, 
ended up being an art director. And at the same time, I was also directing stuff, sending it back and forth through the mail. Uh, Duckman, Godzilla, one episode of Simpsons, um, King of the Hill. So a number of TV series I was a director on. Also something called HBO Fairy Tales. Um, we had HBO, there were these little different takes on Pinocchio was like a little black puppet. I remember and, these, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I directed about eight eight of those or so. And it was that was kind of fun because they weren't storyboarded real well. <laughs> so the timing, uh, you'd get to a point where that's the end of the, and it's supposed to go to commercial. Well, there's another 50 seconds right. that hasn't got anything to fill in the time. Right. So I called them up and I said, you realize this storyboard isn't long enough. <laughs> and they said, you know, just throw in your own gags. So I got to actually make up my own gags and, and put them into the, the series. So uh, that was a lot of fun. Nice. Do you have, uh, uh, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning when you were talking about uh, Brave Star, no Black Star. Is, is there in, uh, in the so many series that you've worked on some little nugget that that never really got the chance to shine. I mean, I know that people come up and talk to you about Masters of the, Un Masters of the Universe yeah, all the time, absolutely. and the, the really very famous ones, but is there some series out there that you're like, you know what, if you would have given us eight more episodes of such and such, that would be just as famous today. Well, and I think I think Black Star was the one. It was uh, after Thundar, so it, it was that same yeah. barbarian-type thing. <laughs> but it was really nice, because he rode on this big, huge dragon, yep. which was really cool. And uh, they had all these little Trobit people, which, you know, you either loved them or you hated them. I thought they were kind of cute. Um, you know, you need a little comic relief, and that's what they were for. But uh, I think that one is one that could have had a much better run, but then He-Man came along, and they just kind of put that in the back burner. And I think also, if I remember correctly, NBC or whoever was doing, uh, paying for Blackstar, they wanted to take out a lot of the special effects and wanted to lower the budget. And Lou said, well, we don't want to do that. That's one of the things That's really... One of the points, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and then He-Man came up and it's like, well, now we really can't even... We don't have the time to do Black Star. So, because now suddenly, instead of doing 13 episodes for a season, 65 episodes in 52 weeks. So, we were, we were off and running at that point. I never got laid off again for the next eight years. Jeez, yeah. that's crazy. Well, uh, He-Man does have the power to squash smaller series, apparently, <laughs> when the going gets tough. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for the time. This is great. And a really, really fun walk down a lot of uh, uh, everyone's childhood, and I appreciate the time. Yeah, that's when I hear more than anything else. It's like, wow, you drew my childhood. <laughs> it's I, true. Yeah, they'll go, this is my childhood. I go, yeah, well, this is my adulthood. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the cool part. <laughs> That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Many thanks to my guest, Tom Cook. Special thanks also to Dave O'Hare and Sal Zerzolo at the Garden State Comic Fest and Eric Belomo for recording the magic as it happened. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your ear canals to nerd out. It means more to me than you know. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? And what deserves to get smashed like an Imperial Scout Walker between the two swinging logs of an Ewok booby trap? 
You can tell me by leaving me a message at one of the show's social media channels. They are the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts, and on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Gigawatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds at the 1.21 Gigawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to 121gigawatts.com and wallow in the nerdliness. And while you're nerding around on the internet, be sure to visit marvel.com, where you can find more of my work as the writer of the Marvel Top 10 video series. The most recent episodes include Top 10 Vehicles, a list which, admittedly, inexplicably, does not include the Avengers Quinjet or the X-Men's Blackbird, but it does prominently feature the Spider-Mobile and a certain motorcycle blazing with hellfire. Visit marvel.com to see the full video. Hey, did you know that every episode of this podcast is available for free at Apple Podcasts? It's so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. And while you're visiting Apple Podcasts, you can help us out. Whether you're a subscriber or not, please rate and review the show, especially if you have something nice to say, because that will help more like-minded listeners find the show. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can also find us at SoundCloud.com or on Player FM. You're probably listening to my voice right now thanks to one of those platforms. Browse the other episodes listed there and check out another one. I'll even make a recommendation. If you enjoyed this episode's interview with Tom Cook, I encourage you to check out episode number 38 when I spoke with Steve Levine, an illustrator and general behind-the-scenes champion of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic book and merchandising empire. When it comes to the turtles, Steve is an unsung hero. A hero in a half-shell, if you will. Oh, you won't? Well, all right then. That's episode number 38 of 1.21 Gigawatts. Give it a listen as soon as you finish this one. Huge gratitude to my co-producer, composer, sound designer, and inventor of the future, David Sisko. Wow. You are and remain the best, Sisko. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all of those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome rocking out with the 1.21 Gigawatts theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Gigawatts, what every geek wants is what we got. From Doctor Who to Aqualad, you might meet Luke and Leia's dad. Pop culture that is super rad, hosted by some guy named Brad. It'll rock you to your nylon Cylon socks. 1.21 freaking Gigawatts. John Blackstar, astronaut. Is swept through a black hole into an ancient alien universe. Trapped on the planet Sagar, Black Star is rescued by the tiny Trobit people. In turn, he joins their fight for freedom against the cruel overlord. Who rules by the might of the Power Star. <laughs> <laughs>
The Power Star is split into the Power Sword and the Star Sword. And so, with Star Sword in hand, Black Star, together with his allies, sets out to save the planet Sagar. This is his destiny. I am John Blackstar.